If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the very last chapter of the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. And this morning, I'm going to preach my very last message uh, from our study through Revelation that we've been in for the better part of a year or more. Revelation 22, if you have your Bible. It said that centuries ago, uh, ancient mariners who sailed the Mediterranean, um, they would do their best to sort of hug the coastline, never really letting the land out of their sight. As they sailed westward, these mariners were eventually confronted with a very difficult decision. And the dilemma was the Strait of Gibraltar with its pillars of Hercules, the famous passageway that led from the Mediterranean out into the vast Atlantic Ocean. Now, if you're familiar with the geography there, you know that it's really the location where the continents of Europe and Africa nearly meet, uh, separated only by just a narrow strip of water that's roughly eight miles across. Well, the Pillars of Hercules there at the Strait of Gibraltar really are two massive rocks, small mountains that seemingly shear off uh, into the water. You've got the famous Rock of Gibraltar uh, there on the European side, which I guess is the Spanish side. And then you've got what's known as uh, Jabal Musa, which is on the Moroccan side or the North African side. Well, as ancient sailors would navigate these waters. To the east was the familiar waters of the Mediterranean. It was chartered territory, uh, familiar waters, discovered lands. But through the Strait of Gibraltar, west was the mighty ocean, and it was unexplored, unpredictable, undiscovered, and mysterious. And so it was one thing for seafaring men to navigate the familiar Mediterranean. It was something else altogether for them to venture through the Strait of Gibraltar and sail into the Atlantic with its seemingly endless horizon. Well, it's said that as those sailors, as their ships would approach the Pillars of Hercules, they would say these words, knee plus ultra, which is simply a Latin phrase which means nothing more beyond. Knee plus ultra. Well, having come to Revelation 22, after more than a year uh, devoted in study of this book, we come to the final message. And once you come to the end of chapter 22, as far as the biblical record is concerned, it's knee plus ultra. There's nothing more beyond and yet how wonderful it is for us to know that beyond death, for the believer, there is a lot more beyond. Aren't you grateful for that wonderful truth? And the picture of what is beyond for the child of God is a very beautiful picture. And that's the beautiful picture of heaven that's painted for us by the Apostle John in Revelation 21 and 22. And so this is something that really fuels our imagination intended by the Holy Spirit to fan the flame of our devotion to God. And so more than any other book of the Bible, the book of Revelation has presented us with this breathtaking portrait of Jesus Christ in all of his risen glory. He's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, uh, 
the lamb who has overcome, and by means of his redemptive work, his promise in Revelation is that he's making all things new. And so when it's all said and done, Jesus Christ will usher in the new heavens and the new earth, and that's something that we've seen emphasized so beautifully and powerfully here in these final two chapters of the Bible. Now, we'll read our text in just a moment. And as we do, I really want you to pay attention to the language of invitation that's used in these final verses of this prophetic book of the New Testament. The language of invitation. John is going to conclude his description of the heavenly city, and then the final words of the book, the final words of the Bible for that matter, these are words of invitation from the Lord himself inviting words. Uh, No one should miss out on this heavenly city and the eternal life that is ours in Jesus Christ. No one should miss out on that through unbelief. I don't want anybody to miss out on what God has in store for redeemed humanity. And so this invitation then that we're presented with at the close of our Bible is a wonderful invitation, a clear invitation clarion call for people to come to Jesus Christ. So let's read beginning with verse 1, Revelation 22. The Bible says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Now listen, here's here's the Lord speaking. And he says in verse 7, behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brethren, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil. And the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Now here's Jesus again for a second time. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he's done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers, the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
And I, Jesus, sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Now listen to this invitation, folks. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. And that's a third time in this chapter that Jesus has promised to come quickly, to come soon. And amen, come Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the final invitation of Revelation. Aren't you grateful that the last passage of the New Testament and for the Bible for that matter is a tender invitation for anyone who's thirsty to come to Christ, come to the fountain of living water, drink and be satisfied. And these are wonderful words of invitation. Words of invitation from the Lord Jesus himself and no one should miss out through their unbelief on what God has got in store, the wonderful plan that God has in store for redeemed humanity. So in this passage of Scripture, we're all invited. And so notice that, first of all, we're invited to a place which serves as our inheritance. The first five verses of the chapter really is a continuation of the very same vision of the eternal city, New Jerusalem, that John was given a glimpse of there in chapter 21. So that in these final two chapters of Revelation, we discover this wonderful description of heaven that is far more beautiful than anything else that we could possibly imagine. In fact, we won't find a more beautiful or detailed description of heaven anywhere in Scripture than we do right here in these last two chapters of the Bible. And the Apostle John is given this glimpse of the new heaven and the new earth there in the first part of chapter 21. The heavenly city known as New Jerusalem, which is a very real place, by the way, and he's given this guided tour of the city, and he tells us all that he, he saw and witnessed uh, there in chapter 21. Uh, he, he describes the descent of the heavenly city as it's a place that's prepared by God coming down from heaven. This is the very same place that Jesus promised his disciples in John chapter 14 that he was going away to prepare a place for them. So that where he is, there we may be also. This is the very same city that's prepared for the children of God. That's what John is seeing here at the close of Revelation. That's followed up by a wonderful description of the city in verses 9 through 21 of that 21st chapter where he describes the walls of the city and the gates of the city, 12 gates, each gate made with a single pearl. Uh, he describes the streets of the city, how they're paved with pure gold, so pure that one could see their reflection in the streets of the city. It's a beautiful, beautiful description of this heavenly city. 
He follows that up by mentioning the dignity of the city in verse 22 through the close of chapter 21. And, and of all the sights that he sees in this wonderful city, he doesn't see a temple. And the reason that he doesn't see a temple is because the glory of God and the Lamb of God, this is the temple. God himself is the, the temple for his people in this eternal city of God. And that just simply means that God's going to be dwelling with his people for all of eternity. We're going to look upon his face and see him in his glory for all of eternity. And this is the dignity of the city that's, that's explained there. Uh, notice they'll bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, verse 26, which simply means that people from every nation, every tribe, every language group, every skin color, will be represented in this wonderful city as the family of God. And isn't that just a beautiful picture? Nothing unclean will ever enter this city, but only those whose names have been written in the Lamb's book of life. And so you've got to have a reservation to be a citizen of this city, to have the new Jerusalem as your eternal home. And the good news here at the close of the the Bible is that the invitation has gone out to everyone And it's still presently going out to everyone so that you don't have to miss out on this wonderful city. And so this is the place of our inheritance. Now John continues his description of this beautiful city in the first five verses of this 22nd chapter, and he's given more detail. And specifically, he's taken all the way to uh, the center of the New Jerusalem itself what we would call town square. And there at the center of the city, he sees the very throne of God. And from the throne of God, he sees a beautiful river, the river of life, water of life flowing from the throne of God. And this water is so refreshing and satisfying. It's bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it flows through the middle of the street of the city. On both banks of the river of life, there's the tree of life represented with all of its wonderful fruits, yielding fruit each month, meaning that it's always growing season in the New Jerusalem. It's always a fruitful time in the New Jerusalem. No more is there going to be famine, and no more are we going to have to worry about being without. No, we'll always be satisfied, we'll always be provided for in the New Jerusalem, and that's what John is seeing here. All right, so this is our inheritance. Now, notice a couple of things about this. Uh, Notice heaven will be a place of personal satisfaction. And I really believe that's what's being driven home with this beautiful description of the throne of God and the river of the water of life and the tree of life. The leaves of the tree are even beneficial. And John sees that they're for the healing of the nations. Now, that word healing is an important word. It's not that there are going to be folks who were sick in New Jerusalem in need of healing. That's not what this means. It's not implying that there will be sickness because we know that all of those former things will have passed away. There'll be no sickness. There'll be no death there. But the word that's used here means that this tree of life is going to be a source of all kinds of satisfying blessing. It translates a Greek word, that word healing, translates a Greek word. It's the same word we get therapeutic from. The idea is it's going to be satisfying. 
so that this tree is a symbol of eternal vitality and fulfillment. Now again, keep in mind how we're really coming full circle. What begins in a garden in the first couple of chapters of the Bible now ends in this beautiful city with sort of the Garden of Eden at the center of the city itself with the tree of life there once again. In Genesis, we read that the tree of life was there in the Garden of Eden. It represented perpetual physical life and strength. And yet, when Adam sinned, he was driven out of the garden. He was kept away from the tree of life. Death entered into human history. And so sickness and pain and hardship, this is all the result of Adam's sin. And that's very much a part of our world now in its fallen existence. But you see here, John sees how access to the tree of life will one day be restored in this marvelous age to come in the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where redeemed, restored, reconciled men and women will live for all of eternity in God's own presence. And that's the promise that Jesus makes to all believers. If we went all the way back to chapter 2, Jesus made this promise in Revelation 2, verse 7, to him that overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. So here's the thing. Paradise lost in Adam is now paradise regained in Christ, and everything will be personally satisfying in the heavenly city. And don't you look forward to that? Not only is heaven a place of personal satisfaction, and this is our inheritance but notice that heaven's a place of purposeful and meaningful service. You'll notice that John says in verse 3, no longer will there be anything cursed. The curse will be done away with. The consequences of sin and the curse of the fall, all of that will be done away with, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in this city, and his servants will worship him. No longer will God be separated from man. You remember when God created Adam and the Bible says that Adam walked with God in the cool of the day? What was Eden but a sanctuary? And man was created to live in perfect fellowship with God, to walk with God, to look upon God, to be fully satisfied in God, but sin resulted in separation and death. And so now man is alienated from God, the very God who made him in his image. But you see, here at the end of all things, God is going to make his dwelling place among us in the new Jerusalem. His throne is going to be at the epicenter of the new heaven and the new earth. And John sees that his servants will worship him. Now that word worship is an important word. It translates a Greek verb, which means to serve or minister. And this is a future tense verb. It's active in voice. So that it means that we're going to have purposeful, God-glorifying responsibilities in heaven. Now, here's the thing. If you thought that heaven is going to be a place where you're going to be bored for eternity, you can go right here to this verse, and this verse dispels that myth. Because we're going to have things to do for all of eternity. We're going to have satisfying, fulfilling, God-giving tasks to carry out all to the glory of God all throughout eternity. That means we're going to serve God in many new and exciting ways without limitations. Earlier in the book of Revelation, John said that God's made us to be a kingdom of priests 
And you know what priests do? It's the responsibility of priests to serve God, to represent God. And so there's something in us that just wants to be productive. (laughs) Now, you may have met someone, you didn't know if they had any desire whatsoever to be productive, but listen, we've been made in the image of God, and so part of us being made in the image of God desires to be productive. We desire to be fulfilled. We've been created with this capacity to be resourceful, imaginative, creative. I mean, you think about it. Isn't it amazing? You know, the inventions, technologies that have been created and discovered and all of that. God has has created us with that capacity. This is what distinguishes humanity from any other part of of creation, we've been created with this capacity to be creative. (laughs) Birds sing their tune to the glory of God, but man can create this symphony orchestra masterpiece symphony to the glory of God because he's creative. He reflects God in that way. And so imagine when sin is done away with. Imagine when we're given brand new resurrected bodies, indestructible bodies, indestructible minds, when we're living eternally in the presence of God, and and, and guess what we're going to be doing, folks? We're going to be imaginative and creative and serving God for eternity to come, where we're going to put our creativity to use for the glory of God. I believe we're going to accomplish great things for God. And we'll know the joy of, 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 uh, of work and service and responsibility, but without the frustration of the fall. Work was never a part of the curse. God gave Adam responsibility in the Garden of Eden long before the fall. When the fall happened, Adam's work was cursed. God said, now it's by the sweat of your brow that you're going to work. And so now, work is often frustrating. It's burdensome. It's tiresome. Even counterproductive at times. You just have to keep getting up and going to work, clocking in and clocking out, day in and day out, and you wonder, what in the world am I ever really accomplishing? Where does that come from? Well, it's part of the fall. But you see, in the new heaven and the new earth and in the new Jerusalem to come, folks, we're going to be serving God with perfectly satisfying, meaningful service for all of eternity, and that's going to be wonderful. So heaven is this place of purposeful service, deeply personal satisfaction, and then notice it's going to be a place of permanent sight as well. Because verse four says that God's servants will see his face, his name will be on their foreheads, Night will be no more. They won't need the sun or the light of the lamp. Why? Well, the Lord God will be their light, and they're going to reign forever and ever, which means that heaven is a place of perfect vision in the light of God. We're going to see the face of God. This is something for which our hearts desperately long and desire. Theologians throughout church history have referred to this as the beatific vision. This idea of looking upon the face of God is really the only thing that fully satisfies the human heart. It's the sight of God that will bring joy and eternal satisfaction to our hearts. As it stands now, we walk by faith and not by sight. And that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, One person said that there's no more a difficult problem that attends the life of faith 
than that we're called to serve and worship a God who is utterly invisible to us. We walk by faith and not by sight. We're sinful. We're finite. The glory of God, this is something that's now veiled to our mortal eyes. Adam was banished from God's garden paradise, alienated from God. No longer does he walk with God in the cool of the day. No longer does he look upon God. He can't because he's sinful. To see God would mean instant death. You remember how Moses so desperately wanted to see God in Exodus 33? Show me your glory. And God says to Moses, no man can see me and live. But God says, Moses, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to hide you in this little cleft of the rock, and I'm going to cause all of my goodness to pass before you so that you'll get just a small glimpse of it. And so Moses got a glimpse of the goodness of God. And just that small glimpse, when Moses came down from the mountain, his face was beaming with the glory of God, so much so that he had to put a veil over his face. The children of Israel couldn't stand it. It was so fearsome to behold. 1 Timothy chapter 6, God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen nor can see. 1 John 4, 12, no one has seen God at any time. 1 Peter 1, 8, though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We're walking by faith and not by sight, but can you imagine what it's going to be like when your faith becomes your sight? And you look upon the face of God, and you see him face to face. Job longed for that day when he declared in faith, after my skin is destroyed, he says, yet I know in my flesh I shall see God, whom I myself shall behold, whom mine eyes shall see, and not in another. So in what many Bible scholars believe to be the actual oldest book of the Bible, the book of Job, here you have Job by the Spirit in faith declaring that the time is coming even after his mortal flesh is destroyed. He's going to be raised indestructible, given a brand new resurrected body in which he's going to look upon the God that he loves. And he's going to see him face to face. And that same promise holds true today for me and for you. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You say, Pastor, I don't know if I'm pure in heart or not. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you come to faith in Jesus and received the righteousness of Christ? Have you been washed in the blood of the Lamb? Because if you are, you've been made pure. And the promise is one day you're going to see him face to face. So, so with this truth, the message of the Bible has come full circle, hasn't it? Genesis tells us how it all began, God's original design for humanity, where all of that went south in Genesis 3, but God had a plan from eternity past to redeem that which Adam lost and forfeited through his own disobedience, and now Revelation tells us how it all ends. In Genesis, you've got paradise lost. In Revelation, you've got paradise regained. Genesis, you've got the entrance of sin. Revelation, you see the end of sin. Genesis, you see the curse pronounced, and now in Revelation, the curse is removed. 
In Genesis, access to the tree of life was forbidden, and now in Revelation, access to the tree of life is granted. And you want to know why that is? Because Jesus got right on a tree what Adam got wrong at a tree. Because Jesus himself became cursed, having been nailed to a tree in our place, so that now through faith in him, belief in him, we get to partake of the tree of life. (laughs) And it's satisfying, isn't it? Deeply satisfying. So this is the place which serves as our inheritance. And folks, we've been invited to this wonderful place by the Lord himself. Now notice, secondly, that we've been invited with a promise, and that promise serves as an incentive. In verse 6, really the concluding words begin uh, to this book of Revelation, and the angel assures John that the words that he's heard and all that's been revealed to him, these are trustworthy and true words. And God, the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants these things which must soon take place. So John is given some much-needed reassurance here that everything that he's experienced, everything that he's heard, this has not been a hallucination. This is not merely the figment of his imagination. He wasn't bored on Patmos and decided to write this story. No, all of this has been revealed to him by God himself. And these words are trustworthy words, true words. Well, we need that in in a generation where we wonder what's true and what's not. You wonder what's fake news and what's not. Here's some good news. Here's some trustworthy words. Here's some true and faithful words that you can put your confidence in, that you can believe. And notice that Jesus himself speaks to the Apostle John there in verse 7 reminding him of his return. So what does he say? Well, his return is soon, and so we'd better obey. Here's some incentive. The return of Jesus Christ is soon, so we'd better obey him. And we've seen all throughout our journey of this last book of the Bible that blessing is promised to the one who reads and carefully obeys its words. If we go all the way back to chapter 1, Verse 3, there's a very special blessing attached to the book of Revelation. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and keep what's written in it for the time is near. And so now, here in verse 7 of this last chapter, Jesus is promising that there's a blessing reserved for the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Not Not just the one who hears the words, but the one who obeys these words. They're blessed. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that term blessed. A lot of people associate it with material wealth. But you know, I know a lot of people who have material wealth and they're absolutely miserable. What many would think is a blessing may in fact be a curse. So you can be blessed and not have a lot of material stuff. That's not what this word is really getting at here. No, blessed in the fullest sense of the term. This is a word that means happy, fortunate. A word that means to be well off. But speaking of a spiritual reality here, it's the same word that Jesus uses in the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He's talking about a state of blessedness or happiness that's true of their spiritual condition because of their relationship with God. So to be blessed is to live with the assurance and confidence that comes from being in a right relationship with God and his word. And that's what Jesus is saying here at the end of Revelation. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed is the one who hears these words and obeys these words. Blessed is the one who is in right relationship with me. And so here's the thing. We keep coming back to this, and I think it's important to emphasize yet one more time, this book that we've studied for the better part of a year, this was not merely written to feed our fascination with the future, but to fuel our obedience to Christ to foster a sense of profound obedience to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus says, I'm coming soon. One preacher said that we ought to live as if Jesus died yesterday, rose this morning, and he's coming back this afternoon. If you knew he was coming back this afternoon before you had a chance to eat lunch, how would you live differently? What would you do? I guarantee you, you'd do something. You'd probably hit the altar and pray or text someone that you need to text, or call someone that you need to call, or go see someone that you need to see, Jesus says he's coming, and that ought to be an incentive. So his return is soon, we'd better obey, and then notice our redemption is sure, so we'd better worship. We've got great incentive to worship based upon all that we've been presented with in this marvelous book of the Bible. That's John's response, because if you look at verse eight, He says, I'm the one who saw and heard these things, and when I heard and saw them, John says, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed all this to me. Now that word worship that's used there, it's a different word than the one we saw back up in verse three. The word worship, the Greek word that's used there, uh, it's a different word that means to serve as in responsibility. Well, this word is a different Greek word translated as worship here in verses eight and nine. It means to kiss the hand. It means to bow down as as one would bow down before a superior. So maybe he's so emotionally overwhelmed by all that he had been shown that, that he collapses at the angel's feet to worship. He's so caught up with the glory of all that he's seen that he sort of loses his bearings and he falls down and he begins worshiping the angel who showed all this stuff to him And that angel promptly says in verse 9, don't do that. Don't worship me. I'm a fellow servant with you and all of the prophets and all of those who keep the words of this book. And so notice he redirects John's focus there. He says, worship God. And by the way, I don't think we could pick on John because if we probably had this same type of vision and this heavenly messenger appeared before us in all of this heavenly majesty, we'd probably be tempted to fall at his feet too. Because as creatures who, who are so prone to walk by sight when we're supposed to walk by faith, we tend to latch on to anything that we can see that tends to give us hope, right? But we need to make sure that our worship and our obedience is pointed in the right direction. And I think that's what the angel is really saying here. Worship God. 
Let all that you've seen, let it fuel love for God in your heart. And if we've come away from a study of Revelation with a notebook full of notes but not a heart full of worship, we've missed the point. We've totally missed the point. I don't care if you can articulate the finer points of dispensationalism or not. Premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, or panmillennialism. It's all going to pan out in the end. You might be able to articulate all of those points and win arguments and debates, but if, if, if what you've read and, and been presented with here has not fueled worship in your heart, then folks, it's all been for naught. So in this last chapter, we're invited to a place that serves as our inheritance. We're invited with a promise that really serves as an incentive. And then one final thing that I'll mention is this. Notice how we're invited by a prophecy which ultimately serves as our instructions. Notice in verse 10, John's t- he's, he's, he's told to not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book because the time is near. And you'll notice that that word prophecy is used around six times in these closing verses. He's told that the words of the prophecy of this book are very instructive. How so? Well, think about how we've been so instructed through these 22 chapters of this prophetic message of Revelation. One thing that we've seen by way of instruction is this. History is quickly winding down and there's no time to waste. Time is marching toward the culmination of God's redemptive plan in the reign of Jesus Christ. And that's what the book is all about. And so the curtain has been pulled back. And we've been able to see human history in its true light. We now know where all of this is headed. What once was hidden now is in the open. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. Humanity is destined to stand before Jesus Christ, and that's what the Spirit has given us a glimpse of in this book. And that means it it needs to be understood. That's why John is told to not seal up the words of this prophecy. Now, Daniel was told to do the exact opposite in Daniel chapter 12, where the angel told him to shut up and seal the words of the book until the time of the end. Well, here John is told to keep everything unsealed, Why? Because this is an important message. And while we may not understand all of the details, that's not necessarily the point. The the bigger picture is this. Jesus Christ is coming. Jesus Christ will rule and reign. And those who place their faith and trust in him will rule and reign with him. And that's the overall emphasis of this wonderful book. And then a second instruction that we take away from our study is this. Jesus is definitely coming soon, and so we'd, we'd better be ready. History's winding down. Jesus is coming soon, and we must all be ready. You look at what he says in verse number 11. Let the evildoers still do evil. The filthy still be filthy. The righteous still do right. The holy still be holy. You say, what in the world does that mean? Well, the idea is when Christ returns, people are going to be forever fixed in the spiritual state in which God finds them. That's what's meant there by verse number 11. It's a warning. It's almost as if the Lord is saying, okay, go ahead, keep doing your own thing and see how that works out for you. Live for yourself, pursue sin, 
deny me, see how that really ultimately is going to work out for you. You're going to be mistaken. Let me ask you this question. Can you say that you are ready? Now, as if Jesus Christ were to come back any moment, are you ready? Or are there something, is there something in your life that you think needs to be settled before Jesus Christ returns? If you don't know you're saved, there's an invitation here for you. Is there someone you're at odds with that you need to forgive? You'd better do it now. Is there something that you sense that you need to do for God, something that God's been calling you to do, but for whatever reason, maybe you've been, you've been lazy, you've been resistant to that call, maybe, maybe fearful of what it might. Listen, you better do it now and respond in faith and do it now. Don't put off until tomorrow what needs to be done today. Jesus is coming, and all of us must be ready. And then a third instruction is this. Salvation is presently being offered and the price has already been paid. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is coming so quickly that when he does appear, men and women will have no time in that hour to repent and be saved. That's why a person must not put off making the decision to trust Christ now. This is the final invitation of Revelation. This is the last invitation of the Bible. Verse 17, both the Spirit and the bride say come. That is, it's the Holy Spirit who's working through the church, issuing this invitation and this call that needs to go out to people of every nation and nationality. From every corner of the globe, come to Jesus while you have time and opportunity. Don't delay. Come to the fountain. Are you thirsty? Jesus says, come to the fountain of living water. There's a, there is a river that flows from the throne of God whose streams make glad the city of God. Psalm 46, verse number four. And yet here in Revelation 22, we discover that the psalmist is referring to an actual river that flows from the throne of God a river of life flowing now from an eternal dimension, the throne of God. You open up your heart. Jesus says, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst again. And the water that I give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life, and it'll never run dry. He'll satisfy and quench your thirst. So the invitation's going out, isn't it? You look at the final paragraph of the book, there's an invitation here, a warning here. Don't tamper with anything that's been revealed. Don't add to the book. Don't take away from the book. If you add to the book, the Lord says, I'll add to you the plagues that are described in the book. If you take away anything from the book, I'll take away your name from the book of life. And you won't have an entrance into the city of God that's been described in this book. In the last verse, verse 21, I love it. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. <laughs> Isn't that a good way to end? The Old Testament ends with a curse. Well, grace is the first and final emphasis of the New Testament. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. 
What what a beautiful summary of all that we've been given in Jesus Christ. Grace for every trial, grace for every mile. The grace that saves me is also the grace that will sustain me, will enable me to stand strong in these last days. Grace that will enable me to keep the end in mind so I don't get discouraged and don't get bogged down in the here and now. And folks, that's the final invitation of the Bible. Let's stand for prayer this morning. You know, from the very first verse of chapter 1 to the last verse of chapter 22, the words of Revelation have been a clear call for us to radically reorient our lives around eternity. And the world and the flesh and the devil wants us to reorient, reorient our lives around everything that's temporal and temporary and fleeting and passing. But you see, Jesus here, he's our north star. He's the one that we fix our eyes upon. And our hearts need to be inflamed with this beautiful promise that he's making all things new. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Do you know him this morning? If not, then listen, the invitation's going out. Come to the fountain and drink. Are you thirsty? There's no, there's no price of admission. The price has already been paid by Jesus through his death in the sinner's place on the cross. And his resurrection life, soul-satisfying life, can be yours. Lord, thank you for your word. May you take these truths and change our lives, Lord. God, we don't want to be distracted. We want to make the most of the time that you've given us, the energy, the resources that we've been given. And Lord, we want to take as many people to heaven with us as we possibly can. So that one day when we all sit down in the new Jerusalem, or when we gather together around the throne of God, there'll be people from every nation represented. I want to see my neighbor to my left. My lost family member. God, I want to see him when I look to my right. So that means, Lord, we've got to take this gospel and share it and invite people to come to Jesus. It's in his precious name we pray. Amen.